Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, how you going? Pretty good. Good to be here as always. Uh, he's got some paperwork in front of him. What do you got there? What are you fanning yourself with, mate? It's happening. It's finally happening. What's that? All my all my lifetime dreams come true. Getting rid of the printer? Yeah, <laughs> getting rid of the printer. Throw it out the paper. Now, what is no, that? People that, aren't watching, the people that aren't watching or didn't have like that photographic memory to quickly glimpse it, what is it? Uh, I got what I believe is the final manuscript for uh, our book, The Golden Years. Golden Years. What's that about? A definitive guide to all things retirement and how to plan a happy and financially secure retirement. Definitive, you reckon? Defin- def- the definitive guide. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I've called rate cut, rate cut predictions for a year and now we're going with the definitive guide to retirement. Okay, no, it's just right. a little, little, could you call it a passion project? I'm not sure. Financial planning, retirement, seriousness project. Um, no, it was good. It's a good book. Well written. I think you had a, you had a quick read of it had a quick uh, read. last week or so. Very much privileged uh, to get a copy of this definitive guide, this manuscript. Um, no, uh, process of writing a book, just generally speaking, how are you feeling? Relieved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Had a fair bit of help uh, uh, going through it all, but uh, I think it finally came together. I mean, everyone, we, we know that we do a lot of work and we only really work with retirees. So this is a kind of an opportunity to reflect on thousands of meetings we've had with different families and hopefully provide some value um, to anyone who happens to buy it or gets a free mm-hmm. one from us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of, when does the book come out? Uh, it's scheduled for April 9 with uh, the same publisher that Kate used, I think Major Street Publishing. Cool. All right. Well, we'll buy 100 books at the RAS Group, and anyone who asks a question in April will get a copy of the book. How about that? There we go. Maybe we'll do, we'll, maybe we'll do this. Does that make maybe, me platinum yet? No, wait. Maybe what we'll do is we'll do you get two books because uh, then it saves on shipping. We're all about the environment around here. Um, so then you can gift one to a family member as well or something like that. Two books. So we buy Beautiful. 100 divided by two. That's 50 to give away. So awesome. Um, now that'd be good. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, talking about that. We've got a retirement series that you and I have 
started to think about maybe doing uh, in a couple of months too. So keep an eye out. to think about maybe doing, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but we are going to do a retirement series here on the Australian Investors Podcast. If you're approaching retirement or in retirement, that will be the session for you. But even if you're not in retirement, like if you're seeking early retirement or just how to build a diversified portfolio, like what you should be doing, what you should be thinking about, passive income, that sort of stuff. Um, that's what we'll be talking about in a couple of months. So uh, keep it's an eye definitely out more on the investment side, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So it's still invest Australian investors podcast related, but we have had a lot of queries about that, um, especially for folks that have come across from Self Wealth Live and listening over there and watching. Uh, we will be doing that, answering your questions, etc. Uh, mate, what's what's happened in the world of Drew other than stacking up the papers with uh, the book? I didn't see anyone down to the beach on Saturday, uh, luckily. I think I put out a recommendation for a beach. <laughs> <laughs> Worried we we're going to be inundated, but um, it was uh, a beautiful day in Melbourne or a beautiful week in Melbourne until that, that rain came and fire season and rain at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I'm just smashing through reporting season like all of us, I think. Yeah, we managed some direct share portfolios for clients. So all the big companies were reporting this week. Hey, you know, just do want to double click on that that uh, kind of like the weird weather in Melbourne for a second. I put it out on Twitter the other day. Um, in Melbourne, right, we're on the eastern side. Some of the folks on Twitter are on the western side of Melbourne over towards Horsham. I was complaining about getting a hail the size of 50 cent pieces and the trees next door snapping off my roof flooding. Meanwhile, on the other side of Melbourne, people were saying that they were leaving their homes and evacuating because of bushfires. Bushfires. It was, yeah. It was crazy. Unfortunately, that's like that's Melbourne, isn't it? That's 100 days away. Catastrophic fire day and uh, hail and thunderstorms on the other side. Crazy. Craziness. Anyway, reporting season. Uh, Prometicus, the much-loved Prometicus, came out with its result today. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know, Prometicus is a software business that specializes in radiology images uh, and just helping hospitals and clinics deal with complex images like, say, x-rays, MRIs, these types of things. Um, the business is probably the best performing company on the ASX over the past 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. Maybe that's Fortescue. Um, like maybe like Pilbara would, would be one of the only other ones that goes near yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Altium used to be second or third, but ironically on this day that we are recording, which is Thursday the 15th of Feb, Altium has also just um, announced that it will be taken over um, by a Japanese company for a huge multiple. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have it right here in front of me, Drew, but I think it's about $68.50 all cash, um, which is enormous. I was seeing $9.1 billion, yeah. Seeing some people on Twitter um, commenting how they're on 30, 40, 50 baggers, meaning their investment's gone up 30, 40, 50 times. And like me, a lot of them are actually disappointed because, yes, it's an extremely good valuation. Like my valuations are high 30s, early $40, and it's getting like nearly double that. Um, but at the same time, really it wasn't. Special. Yeah, it's on a trajectory. Autodesk, for those of you that don't know, Autodesk, which is one of LTM's competitors-ish, came out a few years ago and tried to buy the business for $38.50. So that's a double price. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is the Australian dollar has dropped, so the Australian shares look cheaper to a foreign buyer. Um, so there may be a bit of a timing element in here. Um, but, yeah, it's that's huge. The, the Prometicus result, just to circle back to that, um, it fell, what do we say, 13% today. 
revenue up 30%, profit up 31%, um, cash in the bank, $131 million, company debt-free, fully frank dividend of 18 cents a share. I know some folks have bought it for like, well, they'd be getting more dividends probably than they paid for it not that long ago. So um, wonderful company. Uh, Sam Huppert, who is the uh, CEO and co-founder, I actually sent him an email. By the time this podcast will go live, I sent him an email. Um, Hopefully we can get him or Clayton, who's the CFO, on the show in the next few months to have a chat with us. So keep an eye out. If you do have ProMedicus-related questions, send them in. Um, But basically the business won a huge number of deals, uh, still expanding its ologies, just expanding into different, um, I guess, treatments. Uh, And it's also increased the commentary around Europe as probably a key highlight. Another thing was more big deals, more bigger deals that are taking full stack deals. So all of the products that Promenicus offers, um, big renewals, the RSNA, which is the big radiology um, conference in the US that um, seems to also be going ahead, Drew. So lots of, uh, lots of positives to take away. And as we jumped on the call just before, I said I couldn't find a reason why it had fallen. And you said, well, if you just take a look at the profit margins, uh, Nate, you didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good lesson in investing, isn't it? So you, they came up with this massive, incredible result. Profits, I think, was up 20% or something, wasn't it? Sales were up and everything looked great. Yep. So why does the stock fall 13%? And then I go, oh, well, it's up nearly 100% in the last 12 months. So falling 30% now isn't, you know, it's not a major change from where it, where it was. But if obviously, if you bought in the last few weeks, it's uh, it's painful. But it can be for, for stocks like that where it's still a quality company. It could be as simple as they, they said the growth rate in revenue next year is four. They didn't say this, but it's four versus five percent. There was, I think, there was an example last night. Um, I wasn't sure if you're watching the U.S. market, but Lyft, the kind of Uber yeah. competitor, uh, put a extra zero. In one of their statements, they said they expected margins to increase by 500 basis points rather than 50 basis points. And the <laughs> stock jumped 70% after market, like in trading, uh, solely because of that number. So the, this is the thing about a growth rate of 4.2 versus 5 or rounding can just change all these valuation models overnight. That's why they, the companies can fall. It doesn't make it any better or worse. But it could be one little piece of data that does that. And that's why... <laughs> I think I'm always nervous going to reporting season with any company because um, you don't you don't know exactly what's gonna uh, what's gonna trigger the market. So that's why you, I mean, as you know, you always want to build long term positions, not be seeking to trade in this period because anything can happen. But yeah, I think we got a question on that to cover today. Um, I think there's like this quirk of human nature where you just assume that if someone else has prepared something or someone else has passed judgment on something, you just assume that they got it right. And then you have to like, it's only when you actually have a kind of skeptical mind that you actually realize that, hold on a second, that probably doesn't make any sense. Um, Like in the case of like 500 basis point increase in margins, you would have to think to, you would only know that if you were kind of skeptical of what could actually be done. If you're just like a surface level reader or one of those AI traders that's just looking for like the the dot points at the top of the media release, like um, you're just going to play straight into that and you're not going to realize that's probably an error. Um, and catch the falling knife. Anyway, I had a bit of a play around with it. It's taken me forever. I've been using Google Bard and Gemini and that sort of stuff from Google recently, but I had a bit of a play around with GPT-4 last night, so the most advanced um, open AI model. And i got to tell you, mate, like it is so unbelievably powerful. 
Um, I actually sent it, uh, I actually gave it some Google Docs that um, were 60 page legal legal agreements. And I, I said, now you can pretend that you're my lawyer. Um, it was just incredible. It's like, I don't give legal advice, but. <laughs> <laughs> Always disclaiming it. Yeah. I've done my list every week of like motion app, you know, that AI kind of task yeah. management. I want to try that and I want to try Microsoft. Is it um, not Dynamics, but the Microsoft uh, Copilot okay. uh, and GPT-4. But I just literally it just, I just keep doing it, you know, old fashioned manual way analog rather than digital everything I was, just, I was just blown away by it. i was just like oh so i was literally i was asking it questions like to interpret these legal documents so just to put them in like plain speak for me and it was actually incredible how it did that and um like a total game changer and a reality check for people that are in the knowledge industry so like a lot of white collar workers how does your job evolve with this technology, um, that's the big question we're all asking. Um, I think for business owners, it's going to be incredible, to be honest with you. I think Definitely. that we've, we're asking more and more people just to think about, focus on that for like four hours a day and yeah. see how they can use it. Oh, huge, huge benefits. Like even with very simple things like proofread this newsletter for me, make it better, like turn this up, turn it down. Um, if you get the premium packages with OpenAI, you can talk. It's voice yeah. as well, so it's um, super powerful, uh, super super powerful. But anyway, back to the reality of investing in stock markets, mate. What's uh, what's been making news? You know, I'm a big fan of West Farmers. Yes, the, you know, good, great allocators of capital. They're probably my soul pats. I know you love uh, soul pats, mm. who have a like bit, bit of everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they deliver result today, and it's kind of been this trend this reporting season. I think that uh, retail, a lot of retailers have not performed as badly as expected. I won't say they performed well, but not as badly as people expected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, JB Hi-Fi had a pretty underwhelming number, but share price shot up. So it's kind of people are baking in this really bad retail environment, but the the quality groups are doing well. Um, you know, West Farmers owns Bunnings, Kmart, Target, uh, yeah. Lithium. I always like, tar- do we say Target? Is that allowed yet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, lithium, <Yeah>. fertilizers, <laughs> clothes like all all these kind of multiple businesses and uh i mean it wasn't particularly great they uh saw profit increase by just three percent and um bunnings revenue was only up one percent uh to be honest like it's hard to keep growing at a high rate for such a mature business like in property or construction like seriously and you can't just build another more and more and more bunnings at some point you kind of get um fully saturated uh I mean, Kmart was a highlight. Sales were up something like 5%, but Target's starting to slow down. I think they're removing, they're switching Target yeah. to Kmart stores anyway. So kind of not unexpected. Um, hey, when but, you shop yeah. your basics? Like when you go for like a basic T-shirt, where do you go? Uh, me, I go to Uniqlo now. Oh, right, okay. So you're yeah. Mark. I still go to yeah. Kmart now and again. Yeah. There, there's so much quality. Like I was, I had another note on here, wasn't it? Um, how good is Kmart in the topical? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I still did. hold Kmart, like yeah. life, what do you call it? Uh, homewares. Yeah. It's got to oh, be yeah. buy on Kmart homewares. It's like $4 for a plate that looks like a $400 it's good, plate. It's actually interesting what you said before about JB and West Farmers, though. When you think about it, and even the, the REITs and those types of businesses, like if you contrast that to ProMedicus, like if, you're, if you owned a company outright, 
and you got all of those sets of results, you'd say, well, I'll take 100 Prometicuses before I take one of those other businesses. But yep. the reality is that sentiment plays a huge role, right? When you've got a multiple, it's like 150 times profit in Prometicus. Like you said before, it has to grow so quick compared to, say, West Farmers, which, you know, it's pretty lackluster at Bunnings, but at the same time, it's diversified, it's mature, sentiment wasn't that high, or even like the, the, the property-related businesses. And West Farms up 5% today. And crazy, right? Crazy. Down 13, it's like five's big for a you know top 20 ASX listed company. Oh, so. huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a pretty um, solid result. We had Telstra come out. Let's not talk about Telstra. I was going to say, uh, let's highlight Telstra for a second there. Um, so for those of you that don't follow all of the RAS prod podcasts, shame <laughs> on me, but um, the Australian Finance Podcast is our biggest podcast. And Drew um, happened to appear on that podcast last year, early last year, I think it was. And, he's, and under duress, he was sweating as Kate looked over at him and she said, what are your three stock picks? And Drew said, Telstra, and my eyebrows shot the roof off the, the studio. Um, I almost got walked out. <laughs> but the stock went up and it was called a success. Give us a bit of a one year on, mate. How are we going? Uh, when did we do that? Was that like December 2022, 2021? Oh, okay. Yeah, here we December go. We're getting specific. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's about, I mean, it's a story of Telstra, isn't it? Um, <laughs> It's good for income and little else. Uh, we had a solid run there. Like in, we did have a very time, solid run. Yeah. yeah, I think we got a good uh, like three dollar ninety run up to like four fifty plus oh. dividends. So it's like sitting pretty there, right at the right time when we got back on the AFP. I've been invited back since. So uh, yeah. I have Take to ask Kate a few questions about that one, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but now it's back where it was, and that's kind of the story of you could say this is the story of the ASX as well. So yeah, you look true. at the ASX, we're finally at all time high, but we were. We were there 15 years ago uh, mm. in 2007, and it's 17 years ago in 2007. Um, wow. And essentially, the market's gone nowhere over that period of time, but pumped out a whole heap of income. Yeah, don't you worry about those dividends. If you take the dividends in, you are flying ahead. You're doing um, all right. Which is crazy because people, we talked about this, I think it was last week. People still don't realize that the stock market was very positive last year, like even here in Australia, like extremely positive, especially if you include dividends. People thought the, like the school, sky was falling last year and um, ASX 200, including dividends, double-digit percent, like really, really good. But Telstra, uh, come out, its earnings uh, shrunk, guidance shrunk. Um, any highlights for you from the result? I mean, the profit was up 11%, which for Telstra is pretty good. You know, any sort of profit growth. Um, and I th you can just see where all the money's coming from. It's mobiles. Uh, and I think I was just talking to Jamie and Roshana, who were driving down to Portland um, mm -hmm. uh, today. And they saw, uh, I dropped out like 16 times while I was on the phone. And like good oh. coverage and quality network is incredibly important. Um, yeah. And more and more people are just going back to Telstra for that. And I think Optus is kind of catching up, but that's where all the money comes from. And then they've got the infrastructure services where they split that uh, asset out. So you've got this more consistent debt-funded infrastructure, and then you've got the more growth mobile phone division. And from memory, they bought a kind of an add-on to Telstra Blue, which is like their IT supported IT business um, and looking to expand more. And I'm guessing similar to what's happening in the US, which is supporting companies to go into the cloud and automate um, and, mm -hmm. and you know, integrate things like Microsoft more into their businesses. Yeah, it's really interesting the role that Telco plays in that. When you look at businesses like, say, Technology One or TNE as the ticker symbol, 
they've been doing that for a long time. Um, you know, there are a few others on the ASX that do something similar. Um, and it's actually a really lucrative business model to help companies manage their uh, IT. Uh, you think that a lot of businesses are already in the cloud or already made the migration and they haven't, they really have not. Like there's millions of businesses in Australia and a lot of them still need to move to a more sophisticated digital first business model. Um, well, so they've only started a lot of them. They've made it like they've moved to SharePoint but not integrating anything. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing. There's still a long way to go for that that kind of revolution, if you like. Um, so there was a question that you put in the the, the the notes that we have for each week's episode, and I don't know if this was a question to me or a question to you or a question to yourself, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> what do you know about education bonds and funeral bonds? So I don't know if that was a question for me or for you. I'm going to ask it to you. What do you that know about you? That's a question oh, to you. Okay. You're flipping this around all the time. Um, okay. I'll answer it and then you tell me where I'm wrong because I don't know that much about them anymore. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I'll go. So basically a bond um, is a separate legal structure which is, makes it appealing to people that have a high income. So imagine you have superannuation but imagine you have something called a bond. So it's like the same type of gist where – there's a separate legal entity that stands by itself and is taxed differently to you. You can put your money into a bond, just like you'd put into super, but it stays there for a while. And effectively, that bond is set up as a special purpose entity. And in this instance, it may be used to fund a funeral or it may be used to fund a child's educational expenses. And that entity is still taxed and all that. And there are certain benefits to it. Um, the most common example of this is what we call an investment bond. Uh, an investment bond basically was constructed uh, in the late, I think it was the late 70s. I could be wrong on that. Uh, and basically the idea behind it was that uh, you have this separate legal entity where you could save for your retirement. This was back before superannuation. So high income earners would set up this particular entity, which was at the time called an insurance bond, put their money into it and it would pay tax itself and after 10 years, the money inside would become tax-free. So people could then sell it or they could keep growing it. And there were many different rules around that. But basically when superannuation came along, these bonds really went out of favour and they kind of lost their shine because superannuation in the 90s was a big thing. Fast forward to now, government's still tinkering around with super and people are probably now looking back to them. Drew, that is my insurance bonds. Um, they could write a cool movie about that, I reckon. But um, one day, what did I had? And I go, yeah, I think that's it's spot on. And then it's kind of the for us all driven by tax benefits. Higher income earners find them attractive because it's this tax paid entity rather than one that keeps distributing income income to. And then in the case of education bonds, you you get uh, you actually get a incentive, so a lower from memory a lower tax rate as long as it's used for education. Yeah. Um, when it matures. Uh, right, it has to yeah. be used for sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, for legitimate education. And then funeral bonds, uh, I think up to a certain level, they're excluded, prepaid funerals are excluded from the assets test for Centrelink as well. So they're kind oh. of, they do have these little, I think up to, I think it's 10 grand from memory. Don't don't take this as personal advice, certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, so they, they've got these little uh, tax benefits as well as strategic benefits. Um, and yep. we just we're seeing more and more. We, we get a question on here. I was talking to a group that issues education bonds, and I said that every almost every week we get a question about investment or education yeah. or some sort of bond. So yeah, um, yeah thought it was really to address. What's the name of the company? 
the one we looked, uh, we just met um, Foresters. Foresters, okay. So like a, you know, a 170-something-year-old uh, issuer of bonds. Ooh, yeah. yeah. So this is a really foreign concept to a lot of people because a lot of people that are like investing in their own name and, you know, maybe their own shares, maybe they buy a property or something else, they don't actually fully comprehend that you can have separate entities, like separate things that are taxed differently to yourself, even though you own them. Um, yeah. And bonds is one of those ones, like everyone's familiar with a company, like anyone could start a company just about. Um, most people are familiar with trusts because of an ETF as a trust or because of family trust where they split income and whatever. But not many people are familiar with bonds and they are a really interesting thing. So maybe that's something that we should explore more particularly. I remember when we were at the ASA event last year, I think you might have brought it up or someone might have brought it up that um, no, it's actually like a strategy that people have been using and um, a lot of wealthier families use these as well for different mechanisms like for, so let's just clarify what you actually do with them. So people might be a bit confused about okay, why different, to, different to government bonds too. Very yeah, different. Different to government bonds, totally yeah. different thing. Um, so this is where you would put money into it and then that thing would invest in whatever you want to invest in, whether it's managed funds or whatever. And there are particular providers that charge a fee to set it up for you and to hold that money. And yeah. there are various particular rules. But the idea is that the long-term tax benefits are significant for people on higher incomes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're covered by Life Insurance Act. So they yeah. you know, they have to hold a certain amount of assets to back the bonds that they sell. I mean, the perfect example, I think we're going to try to get Grant Hackett on here, mm. um, who runs the Gen Generation Life, which is investment bonds. I think you can buy that on the share market as well. Yeah, I think you could back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's a good example of it. Um, people might be wondering, well, how does this thing exist? The thing exists because before super, the insurance, what do you say, the insurance act was yeah. a, a thing and insurance companies were set up so that they could provide a future benefit to people predominantly when they die, to be honest, that's what it was at the time. Um, but then the lawyers realized, well, hey, that kind of facility kind of makes sense for others to use. And yeah, we, I did a lot of modeling on these back in the day. And I think um, people have talked about them in books and these types of things. Uh, but Drew, maybe before we get to some questions. Have you I had got a question for you, actually, which was oh. uh, inflation rate for juices in Sydney, plus or minus 12%. <laughs> plus or minus infinity is what I think is going to be. They're trawling the old interwebs just to try and yeah, catch you out on it. You're digging up some old material. I was up in Sydney a few weeks ago, a few months ago now. Um, I'm here right now, actually, I'm recording from a hotel room, so apologies if my mic's not great. Um, and I think the juice, I, I can't remember, I don't know if you've got in front of you, I think the juice was like $15. 15 bucks, yeah. Yeah. It was like, it's ex like that it's is, good. I didn't sure get Sure, you bought it once you saw that, you had to buy it. Someone made a comment though, I think that, I think that the cup of tea was like eight bucks or something. Apparently, so, there's a smoothie in uh, the US you can buy that's 45 US dollars. See that? Maybe that's like a quirky thing, maybe whatever. But this was just a regular juice. Like, I think it's the Kendall Jenner smoothie. Give me a break. And Taylor like, Swift's coming on. Is that tonight? When's, when's yeah. Taylor Swift on? Is that next, all, next week's episode? We're all over the place. But yeah, she is. And that's why I reckon accommodation is quite expensive. Um, Okay, so we did get a lot of questions um, and a good piece of feedback too for us for the Bill Mitchell episode. If you have or haven't already listened to the Bill Mitchell episode and you've just come off Sky News and you're thinking the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling, go and have a listen to that. Um, we did get a lot of feedback 
about this, both good and bad. Like for some reason, when people are interpreting the debt ceiling, they get very political. That's okay. Each their own. Just don't leave us a negative review based on what someone else may have said on the podcast. <laughs> um, but Bill was wonderful. So uh, go and check out that. But uh, of course, if we do answer your questions on the Australian Investors Podcast, you uh, go in the running to get uh, a free pass to the Value Investor Program. And in uh, April, you will get some copies of the Golden Years. Um, so stay tuned. Send your questions in. There's a link in the show notes that says Ask a Question. Uh, it's also available on any of the RASC websites in the the menu at the top. Uh, if we do answer your questions today, which uh, we will in just a moment, uh, we don't know your personal circumstances. So we have to keep our answers general. And that means that if you don't understand uh, the context or if you don't understand what we're talking about, you definitely shouldn't act on the information because we don't know what your needs, goals or objectives are. And if we talk about things like uh, say ETFs or superannuation funds, those things or products as they're known come with uh, product disclosure guides. Oh, sorry, sorry, product disclosure statements or PDSs. Please check them out on the provider's website before you decide to invest in a super fund or whatever, because that is really important. Um, okay, Drew, uh, the first comment question came through from Not Musk's attorney. Uh, it's on debt recycling, and it says, is it better to invest regularly through dollar cost averaging or store those funds in an offset account and subsequently using debt recycling in a lump sum delayed purchase of shares. So I want to add some context here. We just aired an episode. It was on equity release. We did that with mortgage broker Chris Bates. Um, and we talked about how you can use the, basically the ability to redraw equity from your home up to a certain limit. And you can use that. Traditionally, people use that to invest in other properties, like the other next property. property. Yeah. But you can use that to invest in shares as long as it's appropriately documented. And why would you do that? Because it may be the case that if you're investing in shares, for example, it may be tax deductible interest uh, on that that little component of the money that you use. Um, true. Debt recycling. Yeah, I think we talked we talked about this last week too, didn't we? Um, I think you half answered this one too. Yeah. It seems, I mean, in terms of cost and execution, that dumping it all in one is kind of, <laughs> depending on your risk, not dumping it all in, depending on your risk profile, but like you would a property, you don't kind of step it into that next property. You go out and buy a portfolio of assets and then you give them time to compound. Uh, but again, that really depends on your risk profile and how comfortable you are is moving, using borrowed money to invest into uh, a volatile asset. You're anything, you know, there's one in every five years as a, I mean, once a year is a correction, one in every five years is a, a major or not a major crash but some sort of crash so are you comfortable and able to stick to that long-term strategy because it's a lot easier to sell shares when they're falling than it is to sell a property uh so people can tend towards that so i think if you're comfortable with that i just kind of see it as deploy it build a portfolio set and forget uh less yeah. so than stepping in every month your costs transaction costs go up you're out of the market for an extended period of time uh and then you kind of get to move on and just you know, focus on everything else and depends yeah. how engaged you want to be. It's kind of like two questions in one, isn't it? It's like debt recycling and then long-term investing. Definitely, I think we're both in the camp of long-term investing, however that best suits you. But uh, debt recycling, which is the idea of pulling money, constantly pulling money out of a loan and maximizing the amount of your loan to then invest that money into shares or property or whatever. I actually don't like that, to be honest. I don't at least for me personally, I, it's not a strategy I'm going to use. I would 
release the equity, whether it's every one or two years or three years, and then commit that to long-term investing. And you might be saying, well, it's kind of the same thing, Owen. You just, yeah, it is. But at the same time, I'm not, I'm not, I'm doing it prudently. I'm doing it in gated, you know, bits and pieces. And I'm using that uh, capacity to borrow money effectively for the long term. That's not for everyone. It does add risk. You do need to repay the loan. It does extend those types of things. If you have to refinance, it increases, your, you know, all repayments, all that sort of stuff. Um, but for some people, yeah, that makes sense. Um, a lot of the things that we do in life, however, they look great on a spreadsheet. But in reality, when your behavior kicks in and all that sort of stuff, like Drew just said, putting money into a portfolio, it makes sense to put it all in assuming you're investing in a diversified portfolio and assuming you're okay if the portfolio drops 20% next year and you'll still be invested. Um, but sometimes it's easy to break it up because you don't know that and you don't uh, feel that at the time. But great question. Now, Steve's written in. Uh, Steve uh, Steve retired is what it, his, his name is. And um, we're not going to take that into account when we answer this question because um, – this is a good question and it's about financial planning. So Steve says, seen a financial planner to open an account-based pension, this is one for you, Drew, who along with active funds, fees, and his ongoing fees come to a total of $17,000. I worked it out that after taking off the fees plus my 4% drawdown, the balance hasn't gotten much of a chance of, of growing. Can I set things up to live off dividends from approximately $850,000? Now, I'm going to generalize Steve's question to say $850,000 is a pretty good amount of money. Someone, say, approaching a million dollars through, can they, you know, live off that? Secondly, can you just explain what an account-based pension is? Yeah, there's and there's a, probably a question around fees there as well. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, the one I'd start, maybe we'll start with, yeah, balance close to a million dollars. Um, generally, you're going to be excluded from the age pension, having that much in, in an asset, uh, in in financial assets that you have to have. I think it's less than eight hundred or thereabouts thousand. Uh, yeah. So you'd be looking to generate, be self somewhat um, self supporting. Uh, we've got a rule of thumb that says you can generate about five percent from from any portfolio of assets, uh, assuming you're allowing the capital to to consolidate and compound within within your portfolio of super funds. So if you, if you can live off 50 grand in after-tax money every year, then that's achievable. Um, and superannuation, because of the tax benefits, just make that the most attractive structure uh, to hold it compared to, say, in your personal name or trust uh, for most people. Um, the second question would be around an account-based pension. Uh, mm. It sounds very complicated, but it's very simple. Essentially, in superannuation, we're all forced to put money into our super fund. That's called accumulation phase because you're accumulating yep. capital. So you're putting more money in the government's got the super guarantee going up. Uh, when you go to retirement, you are able to convert the money you've uh, built up there into a regular pension uh, that you then receive so you can replace your salary it can be in addition if you're still working in some circumstances uh, and the reason you do that is because once you turn your super fund whether it's an industry fund an smsf a retail a platform uh, into pension phase you no longer pay tax on the earnings or capital gains or income that you receive so you get this tax benefit straight away um, with that restriction comes the need to, or with that benefit comes the need to draw a minimum. So he's referring to the minimum 4% drawdown for those under 65. Uh, but it's important to know that that minimum isn't 
is, is just a minimum. You don't have to draw that. You can draw more uh, and you can essentially draw as much as you like at any time to, depending on how much capital you have. So a lot of people get set on that's the only all that they can spend and they're allowed to spend. But, it, you know, if you can plan out your, your future and it's 5 or 6%, well, that's not a problem either. So Drew, just on that. So I could, Jay, if I retired and I wanted to draw 5%, I could draw 5%. And let's say yeah. I didn't spend it all. I could put that in a term deposit in my own name, right? I don't need to do anything yeah. special. And money. you can contribute it back to super up to 75 now as well without the work test for most contributions. So, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So you yeah. can keep putting it back in. But I think it's this big thing of what we're very big on at Waddle is separating the minimum pension or the cash flow that you portfolio producers, which is part of this question too, from the cash flow that you need to live. You need to work out what how, how much you need to live. And then, I mean, a good advisor would be looking at what combination of assets give you the highest priority and probability of that lasting as long as possible. Um, and then the fee question, I've had, we get this, these questions all the time. Uh, it's probably important to differentiate the three. So you've got investment fees for fund managers, for ETFs. You've got advice fees, which are to deliver strategies, contributions, reviews, being someone to call when you're freaking out and the market's falling. Uh, yeah. And then there's administration fees. They can be to pay a platform like Hub24 or NetWealth uh, or paying Australian Super an admin fee as well. Um, the big thing is the advice fee is an out-of-pocket. So you actually have to pay that usually invoiced uh, a management fee is not an out-of-pocket, it essentially reduces the return that you're receiving on your investment, whether it's a fund or an ETF. The money in there is is calculated sometimes daily, sometimes monthly, uh, and their management fee, which is paying for all the, the staff and administration of that fund, is, isn't is an out-of-pocket expense. So it's always, it's still a fee, but it's hard to say that that 17,000 is the total fees associated with advice for this person. I'd say in this instance, like sometimes, like say if, uh, you're administering your own portfolio um, and you had $850,000 and you got a few managed funds in there, you got a bit of this and a bit of that, you probably find if you added up all those fees that they would be quite substantial anyway. It's only the case that when you go through a financial advisor, they have to disclose literally every single thing. Um, yeah. All in one spot, so it doesn't appear to be a fee to an advisor, even though it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question because a lot of people do want to self-manage um, and particularly the irony is is that a lot of people that need the most help have the smallest balances and they um, they they can't really, you know, get the help because they can't really afford to pay it. But anyway, let's move on to the next question then, shall we, Drew? That was a long answer. No, no, that's a good one because we don't cover enough. That One thing that I've noticed is that a lot of folks that um, – want us to talk about retirement they actually after those questions like when we did the waddle event in melbourne last year that was really wonderful i really loved that event um shame i couldn't stay around longer but that um those types of questions are the questions people want to know like the actual give me the answer to this question because i don't actually know what it means um rave damsey which is a play on dave ramsey for those of you that are playing along at home how come asia etfs exclude japan is there anything unique to Japan that makes their stock market or broader economy different compared to other nations in Asia, so Southeast Asia? The answer is, Rave Damsey, that it's a developed market economy. Therefore, it is excluded from most of the ETFs that do emerging markets because it's not an emerging market, it's a developed market. So you can invest in those ETFs directly, like Japan ETF, or you can invest in the Japan funds like from Platinum or Antipodes or insert name of Japanese fund manager. Um, Drew, do you know any particular really good, other than those two that I just mentioned, any other really good Japanese fundies? I think one of it is that um, the it's one of the biggest economies in the world. And if you include that in an Asia index, 
uh, completely similar to including China, it skews. So you're going to have like Mitsubishi's and these massive companies taking up a huge share of the benchmark, and that's that's part of what. And and they're growing at different rates to other parts of the of the uh, region. So most things are Asia x Japan. You can occasionally get an Asia including Japan, um, but it's rare. Um, I mean, we've uh, at the moment we're looking at platinum. So you yep. know the old old platinum value investor um has a japan fund and you can see the performance there yeah and uh, there's this whole story about the modernization of the economy and how companies are becoming more efficient and breaking up to provide value to shareholders because very different culture in japan i think corporate versus uh, america for instance um that'd be one there's quite a few though yeah uh ben the badger writes in and says Firstly, was trying to get to the show notes, but seemed to get in a loop and no luck. This is for the Bill Mitchell episode. Sorry, Ben. Um, you will find more show notes. It is on the website. So all show notes on the RAS Media website. Sometimes the two cents um, show notes don't go up on the RAS Media website because Drew and I don't say enough interesting things for us to want to put show notes up there. But um, they're all, there's always links available in the podcast player. So if you're on Apple or Spotify or whatever, there is always a link to like ask a question and resources and whatever. Uh, ben goes on to say, comment was on the podcast uh, with Bill on MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. This is Bill Mitchell, Professor Bill Mitchell. Love the discussion, but would uh, like a few more specific questions. On the example of Japan being a good uh, example of how to manage inflation, how does population and immigration factor into the equation and impact this inflation? Regarding infinity minus one for governments to print money, a more detailed explanation of this logic would be good. For example, how does that relate to trade balances? Does the overall net, does the overall debt mean anything if you can just issue your own currency? Traditional thinking is that an increase in the supply of money is inflationary. Is this true? It would be great to have economic guest on who is MMT oriented to go into detail on this. Thanks, Ben the Badger. Um, well, this is Guy Bell. We'd love to get Guy Bell on. He's yeah, studied guy, with Bill. Guy listens regularly. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, um, proponent of my pursuit of an RBA board position. <laughs> so we do have um, just Ben, as you know, we have uh, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth in the studio with us today. So uh, I mean, I was going to say we didn't talk about this, but CBA has predicted three rate cuts this year. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That's great, man. I think I'm um, off the break cut bandwagon there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not me, Andrew. Yeah, Andrew. We don't. Uh, Andrew doesn't make predictions anymore. Um, so, if you have a debt, like say in your trade, say if you have a trade deficit, um, would that matter in MMT? Like, if we were just issuing our own currency, would that matter? What really matters is, I mean, the US, uh, from memory is a perfect example. What really matters is where, how you're funding that and if you're uh, funding it in your own currency or not. So the, this always, this becomes a problem for countries like Argentina or Greece where they're issuing debt in currencies that aren't their own or they, they don't have the capacity to create more of. Um, I think it's a simple kind of answer to it that this only works for self, you know, self-issuing uh, currency countries or countries that are issuing their own currencies. So Australia, the UK, uh, maybe it works for Germany because they're so dominant USA. in Europe, the USA, Japan. Japan's like the, that's why Japan always comes up. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, immigration and population can kind of factor into it. But I think you've got the perfect petri dish example in the last kind of three years, which is it's when you throw too much money at a scarce pool of resources that inflation comes. That's why. You look at the jobs market in the US that there was all this money. You look at mm -hmm. the goods market, the car market, 
it was not enough resources and more money thrown at it. And it wasn't necessarily just the creation of money that did that. Yeah, I think that, um, not to bring Grudels into this, but I did buy a couple over the past few years. <laughs> and um, I did a video during COVID to explain why the price of puppies had gone up. And it wasn't because of inflation or money supply. It was because there weren't enough puppies and people want, wanted to spend on them because they couldn't go overseas. Um, and so we had limited supply. And so if those things are managed, like in labor markets, uh, it, in this case, the labor market would be the puppy, um, then effectively you should be able to, to manage that. And for many years, for probably the better part of two decades, Drew, people said Japan was a basket case because it was issuing currency, because yeah. the stock market hadn't gone anywhere. And inflation um, never came. Yeah, inflation, so it never came, yeah. And we had that problem, like if you go back before COVID, this is the thing, if you go back before COVID, we were on a downward path with interest rates. Yeah. Um, and inflation was still going down, right? So, I think it, And that doesn't mean in immigration is inflationary. I mean, a lack of immigration can be inflationary as well, can't it? Because you've got no supply of kind of lower cost uh, workers, which is what most countries have benefited from. Yeah, um, I mean... In yeah. terms of immigration, so uh, well, I've got a, quite a few articles I've shared. I think I shared some with you. I've got uh, as a, yeah, client, a couple of clients who, yeah, I know oh, a Bill? client of mine who, oh, who right. loves Bill's work and Warren Mosler and um, a lot of other people, and he sent a few links in which we could probably share. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll put them in the show notes. So we've got some more resources for anyone that's interested to dive deeper into this topic, um, as well as Bill Mitchell's website, which I think is just BillMitchell.org. Um, yeah. It's uh, there's heaps of resources on there, like economic textbooks and stuff like that it seems like a bit of a weird thing for most people that are new to finance and investing like why are you talking about the economy so much well because this is the big picture stuff that people actually worry about when it comes to their portfolios and a lot of what we think we know about the economy and how to predict it often isn't true so like it may work in an, a laboratory or in a university but in the reality it doesn't actually prove to be true so um yeah, it, that's why we talk about it so much. Okay, so we've got a few more here, and I love this next question. It's probably my favorite. It's not my favorite question and name. That's the next one. But this one uh, is quite good. Breaking good habits in brackets. So breaking good habits, Drew. Um, I've always tried to maintain good money habits. I always invest every month, and every month I always pay my credit card off in full. have been able to sustain this for over a decade. Kudos. But now, drama. An unexpected expense combined with a need to pay school fees means for the first time in a very long time, I won't be able to do both. If you had to break one of those habits, which one and why? For extra clarity, we are only talking about $2,000 and all should be good and back to normal next month. Is this something you'd break glass on the emergency fund for? Considering that the opportunity cost is pretty small, I'd lose some bonus interest for the month on the emergency fund if I withdrew any cash. Now, we're not actually telling you to invest in a product or anything like that. And we have no way of knowing who you are. So we're going to do our best to answer this question quite directly. But basically, you've been saving and paying off your credit card and investing for the long term each and every month for a decade. That deserves a gold star at least. But this month, something has happened. What do you do? Drew, in this instance, what would you do? Break the glass. You would, you would go in. You would raise that. That's why you got an emergency fund. Yeah, it's kind of this. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, as you probably know, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty big on like habit and routine, 
Uh, and you know, good routines are, uh, are great, but the one of the issues I probably had was I'm I'm off if I break the routine, mm -hmm. uh, and then you and you let it kind of spiral out of control. So it's more about this is the reason you do it. Take the opportunity, use it, and then get back to your routine the next month or the next day or whatever it happens to be. That's a bit yeah. life, life coach there, but <laughs> like give yourself a break. This is why you do it. No, it's actually really, I think I agree with you completely. I think you would use, if it's the keyword was unexpected, definitely, definitely use that money to to nail that school fee bill or whatever the case may be. Um, one reason is the interest that you receive on your emergency fund, even if it's in an offset account, is not going to be as hard as harsh as the penalty that you lose for using a credit card that goes over. And the long-term investing, when you look back in 20 years, you're going to be glad you kept that habit for 20 years rather than thinking, oh, I, broke, I potentially broke that habit because I was worried about, you know, spent like breaking my emergency fund. That's why we have it. Um, that's exactly why we have it. And um, I think that's actually a good lesson for anyone that tries to drive their budget to within like four decimal places. I tried doing that for a long time, had different accounts for this and that. And over time, what you realize is that simple is best and give yourself a buffer and don't be afraid to make mistakes along the way. But just keep the habit of long-term investing in check. That will change your life for sure. Great question. Wonderful question. Um, now, this is an interesting one, Drew. Um, I, this question really stumped me today, and I shared it on Twitter. Um, the question I remember now, when OE had 20-inch pythons. Yes. <laughs> I don't know who this is. So if, if someone, someone from the footy club? If someone wants to write in and tell me, no, see, this is the thing, that name, someone calling me Oi, which is a childhood name that I have. So I don't know who this is. But if you Do are you out there. Big pythons, a python being a bicep when you were younger. Well, that's it, yeah. I, um, I used to love going to the gym. Um, <laughs> not so much anymore. I'm in my 30s. You're um, a torn calf. <laughs> you're a torn calf. You're older than Franken credits. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I remember when Oli had 20 inch pythons writes in and says, as a private investor with a full-time job and a 10-month-old daughter, what's the best way to keep up with the reporting season? I feel like by the time I get around to having a look through the annual report a few days goes by, or maybe it's even a week later, and I've missed the initial surge in the stock price. Drew, what would you say about that? The best way, uh, don't trade heavily. <laughs> during yeah. earnings season uh, and I think be patient. Um, so I think that what, having a look through the annual report a few days a moment, yeah, I, I, I would always rely on, uh, I think, brokers to assess big changes to earnings um, and don't try to do it yourself. I know you, I've heard a lot of people using ChatGPT to just spit the broker report in there and, and summarise okay. it. Um, and give me this four dot points. I think I met the head of distribution for a massive fund manager yesterday. <laughs> it was, oh, wow. that's me. I just put reports in there and give me five dot points. Um, so that's super powerful because you don't need to know most of it. You don't need to go through the, the whole thing. There's like certain, there's like four areas that really matter. Um, and you know, fund managers that hold it and brokers that hold it are a great source of information and they're, mm -hmm. they're pouring over it. They've got a prediction every quarter of what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I probably have a slightly different strategy. If I had a lot of individual stocks that I was following, what I would do is um, I would give up on parenting and just focus on the stocks. <laughs> um, so what I would do is I would um, I had a habit of like my five or ten biggest positions every reporting season. I would prioritize those, and I would go back and read my notes from the previous 
quarterly or the previous six month report, I will read those the day before so that when the next results come out, like say the next morning, I can just have a quick glance at the things that they said or did or that mattered to me last period and just look for those three or four things in the report and skim read and just go, okay, bang, bang, bang. That all looks fine. Even if the share price reacts, I'm going to go to sleep. Like for example, take Prometicus down 13% today at the time of recording. I still own a small amount of shares in that that beast. Even if I held a lot of shares and it fell 13%, I wouldn't care. Like that does not bother me at all because I mean, sure, if Sam or Anthony, the two co-founders, said they were leaving, absolutely I would pay attention to that. Now they will probably or might leave eventually, but I would pay attention to that. But if it's fallen because growth didn't match the expectations of the market, it's more often than not the market was wrong and not the company. Um, and so that would be the first thing. The second thing it, that I would say is that if you're a long-term investor, it kind of heals these wounds in that you don't have to be there on day one to be a good long-term investor. Like if you're investing in NVIDIA and you see one bad quarter and the share price falls 30% because it's so highly valued, are you really going to sell it based on one quarter? No, because in 10 years' time, your thesis should be playing out then. Um, and you might be saying, well, how do you know if it's just like a bad quarter or a bad six months or something? Well, if it's a bad quarter, you can probably forgive one quarter. You can probably even forgive two quarters, but three and maybe you're out the door. Now, some people do it differently. Like Claude Walker from A Rich Life has an excellent strategy of covering companies really closely. That's a richlife.com.au for those of you that know it or don't know it. Um, Claude has a wonderful ability to uh, identify kind of like when companies may be um, like the momentum may be shifting. So go and check out that. Uh, but for me, long-term focus, you don't need to get the results every day. Um, the only reason I look at the results every day is for our members, frankly. That's it. So if I didn't do it for a job, I wouldn't look at it on the day. I'd be happy just to keep, keep holding. Um, okay, we've probably got time for one more question, Drew. Um, maybe, I don't know what this is. Um, so maybe this one. Lend me dot, 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 your general financial information. I like what you did there. Thoughts on Van X Lend ETF? I haven't come across this, Drew. So this is the Lend L E N D ETF from Van Eck. Yeah. I got a call this week from Van Eck actually uh, to chat about it. So I'll tell you in two weeks. <laughs> um, I think super popular at the moment. We talk about interest rates going up. All these asset classes are popular again. So like bonds, term deposits, and what what this is Lend is a is a private credit. Uh, index, a private credit ETF. So you're right. investing into managers of private credit and private credit is just a loan to a company rather than to a government. Um, so this invests into like little sub funds of KKR and uh, oh, other major right. groups that are listed on US stock exchanges. So at yield something like 10%. Um, you know, we don't mind this kind of core satellite strategy, but credit is one that's very difficult to uh, replicate. And we see heaps of value in active management in, in credit as opposed to kind of passive. But on first blush, it, it's not, um, it seems like a reasonable reasonable diversifying income. So it's global credit run by private credit managers. Okay, so that's the fund L of funds, essentially. L-E-N-D ETF from Van Eck, and you can find out more information on their website. That's a good When you've had a look through that, Drew, let's, let's circle back to it in a few weeks on the Australian Investors Podcast. Uh, there are a lot of good questions that were sent in this week that we didn't have time to get to, unfortunately, but please keep sending them in. Uh, and please keep sending in the funny names and the banter because um, we do like it when you correct us or when you 
call us out on a call that we may have had quite a while ago. Uh, I know that Bill Mitchell fanboy wrote in and said, hey, Drew, last week you talked up the medical sector and named CSL. After this week, what's your opinion of the stock? And then you've just put in the comments, ouchie. Um, <laughs> so, we'll cover uh, that next week. We'll cover that next week. Quickly, can you give us a joke? Secondly, I'll pick the, the winner of this week's... Uh, it has to be the 20-inch, always 20-inch pythons, doesn't it? 20-inch pythons, yeah, sure, why not? Write into me uh, and let us know at RASC and we will give you a free pass to the Value Investor Program. It's a online course that teaches you everything about how to value research and find companies, hold them for the long term and build a core and satellite portfolio. But I also, other than just the personal connection I assume I have with this person, uh, I would also say that breaking good habits, that was a wonderful question about what to do in that scenario. So please write into us. You want a value investor program pass as well. So thank you to everyone that wrote into us and asked questions. Drew, do you have something to take us off into the sunset? I do. I'm just going to put it out there. I went to Blink-182 last night to, oh, for, for those of my vintage. Right. It was an awesome concert in the end. Nice, I had a little mate. bit too much fun. Uh, so I've got a music-related joke and <laughs> I might sing here too. Oh, okay. Uh, laughing, my thing. friend asked me to stop singing Wonderwall to her. Okay. I said, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank goodness the Blink-182 concert would have been loud. <laughs> uh, well, mate, that's great. I'd give you a yeah, good 3 out of 10 for that one. But it, <laughs> points for trying. Points for trying. Drew Merritt. Soon to be author of The Golden Years with uh, Jamie Nemses from Model Partners. If you need financial planning advice, you know where to go. There's a link in the show notes that says financial planning. You can also head to waterpartners.com.au or just send your demand straight to drew at waterpartners.com.au. No more singing. <laughs> I'll keep my uh, – yeah, no more singing. Put that in the subject line. I'll keep my, uh, my vocal cords for next week. Mate, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.